0: new space rock, and maybe a new anime character, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. It's another one of those overflowing episodes, and why not, when you've got a newly discovered asteroid that is going to get uncomfortably close in less than a year. We'll talk with one of its discoverers and with our own Bruce Betts. Bruce heads a grant program that helped make the find possible. Oh, and that anime character? Emily Lakdawalla, will get to him in a moment. Emily, I am so glad that you were able to turn good news and bad news into good news and good news. Please explain.
1: Well, that's right. I had I posted a couple of brief mission updates last week. One of them was on GRAIL. That's the twin spacecraft that are studying the lunar gravity field. And they successfully got their science mission underway last week. It's, it's going to last less than three months to do their primary gravity map of the moon. And then hopefully they'll get an extension. So that was good news. But then with this solar storm, that has been um, spraying outward from the sun for the last week. Uh, Several spacecraft have had some issues, none of them permanent, Venus Express looked to be the one that was worst affected. Its star trackers, both of them, went blind last week for more than two days, which is the longest that has ever happened on this mission. But fortunately, the, the news came back about a day after I posted it that, that in fact, the use of the star trackers had been recovered. And actually, there was a comment on this blog entry from Mark Adler, who used to be the project manager for Mars Exploration Rover mission, and he reminded me that both of those missions actually suffered momentary Star Tracker blindness from a solar, solar storm that they were hit with back in 2004. So I guess it's actually a common occurrence.
0: Thank goodness these things weren't just burned out, that they actually yeah. they just had snow blindness, you might say. The other thing that we really have to do, because it has such great audio potential, is this theme song for a Japanese mission that you found.
1: Yeah, it's a Japanese mission that we don't know it's hibernating right now. We don't know if they're be, going to be able to retain contact with it. It's Icarus, the solar sail mission, which throughout its lifetime has had such the adorable personality online and and now they've made it 10 times more adorable or i guess i should say kawaii which is the uh, japanese term for cute uh, with this cute theme song that they've made it's it's just great
0: this completely took me by surprise we're going to sneak in a few seconds of it here That is amazing. Uh, Fully orchestrated, much more than I expected. What fun.
1: I would watch this anime if it was a cartoon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, keep your fingers crossed. It might end up that way. And just to prove uh, the nerddom uh, that is uh, present here today, you wrote this terrific piece about your visit to the Leet Up on March 6th. We don't have time to explain it, but it is a March 6th entry in the blog, this uh, carnival of nerdly delights, as you described it. You happened to mention the proof of uh, your own nerdiness uh, out of this. Going back to high school, I had no idea that you used to design your own Transformer characters.
1: I thought the Transformers did not have a sufficient number of female characters, so I designed actually nearly 200 of my own.
0: (laughs) Uh, Emily, you're a nerd. Uh, Thanks (laughs) Thanks for joining us once again.
1: You're welcome, Matt.
0: She is the, uh, the nerd-in-chief d- and the uh, science and technology coordinator for the Planetary Society and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. Up next, though, is, uh, well, really, he's the nerd-in-chief, Bill Nye. Bill, the budget battle for NASA continues. I, I think a friend of yours testified before Congress last week.
2: Yes, well, he's not just a friend. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson is also on the board of directors of the Planetary Society and served as our president for a number of years. Now, I, Matt, just to talk briefly about me, I'm in the wonkish details right now because I am the CEO. We are working the political problems. We are thinking deep thoughts about who said what to whom and what committee meeting before the approps goes to the CR for the earmarks and all that stuff. Murky. But Dr. Tyson went to the Senate, and he gave him an earful. He can do that from his <laughs> position right now. He says, you want to innovate? You want the United States to be the world leader in anything? In the 1960s, before people went to the moon, the United States didn't outsource anything because the United States felt it could do it better here in the United States. But now, uh, everything is outsourced. Everything goes overseas or to other countries. And so the argument is, if you want to have this in-house production again, you need to stimulate space exploration. And I am going to agree with him. Here, here. (laughs) Cutting the NASA budget, I get it. Everybody's budget has to be reduced, you might think. But cutting the NASA budget or the space exploration budget, not just in the United States, but in any country, the space exploration budget stimulates every economy. It stimulates everybody and it percolates up and out. It is a, uh, a really uh, compelling argument. I wish him and I wish you luck. Uh, thank you, Matt. And bear in mind, we're trying to discover life on another world. We're not just building rockets for the sake of rockets. We find that, uh, that extraordinary discovery, it will change this world. Well, Matt, as near as I can tell, it's time for me to fly. Bill Nye, the planetary guy.
0: He is the Chief Executive Officer of the Planetary Society, joins us every week uh, here for this short conversation about what's happening up there and very often down here as well. I'll be right back to talk about some terrific work supported by the Planetary Society that has resulted in the discovery of yet another near-Earth object. 2012 DA14 is an asteroid and, more precisely, a near-Earth object, a very near-Earth object discovered late last month. We'll talk in a few minutes with Spanish astronomer Jaime Noman about this NEO, but first some background from Bruce Betts, the Planetary Society's Director of Projects. Bruce, I'm glad that we can get a little bit of explanation from you before we talk to Jaime of the Lasagra Observatory Group, because you run the Shoemaker Neo program. Tell us how that works and how it is that we were able to help uh, Jaime and his uh, colleagues get this camera that let them make this discovery.
3: Well, since 1997, we've been running the Gene Shoemaker Near-Earth Object Grant Program. Gene Shoemaker was a... uh, Great planetary scientist who gave us a lot of uh, the knowledge of what we know about impacts and cratering in the solar system. We're trying to fund amateur observers that are, and when we say amateur, it, they're really hardcore amateur, or professionals, particularly in developing countries, or just anyone. It, it's an open competition, and we've got a great uh, volunteer committee that looks at the proposals and then pass recommendations along to me and Jaime Noman and his uh, collaborators at La Sagra Observatory submitted a successful proposal during the 2010 round and uh, theirs was a good example of what we do. We try to take good observers and take them to the next level. So they were already doing great work, but they had a, they wanted to, to do better work. So we funded a new camera that allowed them to not only have more sensitivity, but have faster readout times, specifically so they could look for fast moving objects uh, near Earth, which is exactly what they
0: found in 2012 DA14. And we've talked to a selection of these folks in the past, and some of them extremely successful, some of them eh, less so, I suppose. But, uh, no
3: they're all successful,
0: they're all successful, yes, actually they all they are
3: are all amazing, I mean but, obviously they different they focus on different things too. Yeah. I, I should point out, so you've got that uh, discovery has actually become a pretty rare part of the program because a lot of the discoveries are now made by professional surveys. Uh, that's what's interest also interesting about what Hyman and his colleagues have done because they have found ways through this clever Searching the sky for rapidly moving objects to to find holes in the surveys and fill fill them in. But we also a big focus is doing follow up. So once you find an object, that doesn't help you unless you know whether it has Earth's name on it. So you need to do lots of follow up observations to plot the orbit. So a lot of the observers do that. We've got observers who focus on binary asteroid systems. We have observers who focus on characterization of you know what are these things made of. So all sorts of variety in the program and lots of success. This particular find though, this one is especially significant. Uh this one is is and it's certainly going to get a, a lot of publicity and it's also scientifically and uh asteroid defense significant because you've got this big object, fifty meter object roughly, uh so size of what caused the Tunguska event that leveled two thousand square kilometers of forest in Siberia in nineteen oh eight. As we heard only last week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. You've got this object flying by closer than Earth's geostationary satellites, significantly closer than Earth's geostationary satellites. And we know when it's coming by and it's coming close, so it'll allow a lot of follow-up observation. That's going to be really important because particularly when they come by Earth, they get... Not surprisingly, quite tweaked by Earth's gravity. Uh, having lots of observations, knowing it's coming, will allow us to then plot orbits off into the dis- very accurate orbits off into the distant future. Because I'm sure not optical telescopes, radar telescopes, all sorts of things are going to be looking at that when it flies by next February. Be there. <laughs> <laughs> I think we ought to head out. It's there on the other side time. of the Earth. Yeah. But, oh, I yeah, see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's and- not, probably not naked eye, but it's binocular visible. Yeah, I read magnitude 7 or so. Yeah, now all that's kind of ballparked at the moment, but it gives you an idea.
0: I was starting to say thank you, and uh, don't go too far away, because we'll be talking to you again in just a few minutes when we get to uh, this week's edition of What's Up. I will sit here and wait, though perhaps not patiently. Bruce Betts, as if you don't know, is the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, and one of those projects happens to be the Gene Shoemaker Neo- Program grant program that uh, operates out of the Planetary Society. Be right back with Jaime Noman. I'm Robert Picardo. I traveled across the galaxy as the doctor in Star Trek Voyager. Then I joined the Planetary Society to become part of the real adventure of space exploration. The Society fights for missions that unveil the secrets of the solar system. It searches for other intelligences in the universe, and it built the first solar sail. It also shares the wonder through this radio show, its website, and other exciting projects that reach around the globe. I'm proud to be part of this greatest of all voyages, and I hope you'll consider joining us.
1: You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org slash radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Our nearly 100,000 members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org slash radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. We talked before the break with Bruce Betts about 2012 DA14, the asteroid discovered on the night of February 22nd by astronomers at La Sagra Observatory in the south of Spain. Jaime Nomen is part of that team. I connected with him via Skype a few days ago so that we could learn more about how the discovery was made but also about this independent group of modestly funded astronomers that has found many NEOs, including this fast-moving space rock. Jaime, what a pleasure to be able to speak to you and congratulate you on the discovery of this near-Earth object.
4: Oh, yes. Uh, So we were very, very lucky to find it.
0: I think it was more than luck. I think that you and your, your colleagues at the La Sagra Observatory there in the south of Spain, have uh, built a tremendous record for yourselves, which uh, cannot be based uh, purely on luck. Certainly we of the Planetary Society hope that our camera uh, that we were able to help you to buy uh, helped quite a bit.
4: Yes, of course. Uh, we were looking for a, a fast readout camera because uh, we spend a lot of hours uh, reading out the images. All the process is very, very slow. We know at this moment that it's very difficult to find new neos trying to to go after what the big u uh, s surveys are extremely well doing, so the thing is to try to find something different to try to get uh, smaller objects faster objects those objects are appearing in a few hours because small objects are a very very faint magnitude and sometimes they uh, strike directly to the earth and in in maybe in one two days they come visible and you can detect them so. With the old cameras, it was completely impossible to achieve this.
0: Were you also, in a sense, looking where many of the other sky surveys do not look for these objects?
4: Of course. Every night we start observation. We try to monitor the sky coverage at the minoplan center. And we know exactly where the big surveys go. And then we try to find virgin sky areas in order to not go after them, because we know that if you are picking the same sky areas, of the last night they made, for sure we're not finding anything there, so this is the first step, but sometimes at at the end of the dark run, so when the moon, all the dark period with no moon, at the end you see that uh, the full sky is is mostly covered, so then what to do? Then is to try to go to the areas that are already covered, but uh, change the strategy, to try to find only those smallest objects. That may be visible only in the last two or three days. Also, because they move really, really fast. So they move from a uh, not uh, surveyed area to an, uh, to a uh, one that is already surveyed maybe in one day.
0: How many asteroids have you and your team uh, discovered?
4: Uh, if you ask me about asteroids, yeah, and then we take into account the main belters and all kind of uh, minor um, you know, planets, maybe more than 6,000. Asteroids. Wow! If you take into account only the uh, nearer objects, so the objects that uh, have closest approaches or they have uh, perihelium uh, under 1.3 astronomical units, with this last interesting object, 51, 51 uh, neos in the last three years, which is
0: which is quite a record for for your team, putting you right up there with these three major uh, U.S.-funded surveys, uh, and, of course, the WISE spacecraft that has found so many of these. But let's talk a little bit more about 2012 DA14. Were you folks particularly excited when you found this and discovered that this was uh, an object that was uh, going to be returning in less than a year so close to our planet?
4: Okay. The nice thing about that Neo is that for us it's really, really hard now to find the new, uh, near object because all the sky is really well covered. When you go one night for instance to go to try to discover new asteroids, every night you can discover main belters. The problem is you spend a full night sometimes for nothing because you are not finding anything. So it's somehow, somehow it's comparing to try to hunting something kind of animal, leopard, whatever. So you go to hunt, <laughs> And most of the night, you are coming back home with nothing, because there are not so many. Last month, the sky was really, really well covered. We were searching different areas, and nothing, nothing, every night, finding nothing. So at the end, we were thinking, we need to change the strategy. We need to go to different way to, to try to survey objects. And then after three nights, we found this object. At the first moment, you see that the object is quite close to the Earth because it it, it leaves in the images uh, a worm, so it's not a dot, but it's, you see that it's moving fast because in the, in the exposures you see already that the object is trailing, and then you suspect that it would be more or less interesting, but it is only after other observers add some observations that can be computed, then you know exactly where it is, it is really, really close or not.
0: And, of course, uh, this object has been determined to be exactly uh, what we've described as a near-Earth object and will be returning uh, quite close to our planet, as we said, in uh, February of 2013. I hope with the moment or two that we have left that we can talk a little bit more about your observatory. I went to uh, the uh, website for the uh, La Sagra Observatory. It's in quite a beautiful spot there. It must be some place that you like to visit.
4: Yes, of course. It's a very, very nice place. Is in the south of Spain, uh, beside a very high mountain that can be seen in the background of the images of uh, this 2,400 meters high altitude. And um, the place is uh, the darkest place in Spain mainline, uh, even in Europe. If you consider Europe and you take into account the Canary Islands and all that, then um, there are places that are better. But in the mainland of Europe, maybe, are the darkest places, this one. And this is the reason when we moved from uh, Mallorca, because uh, we started in, in the island of Mallorca with the observatory there, and uh, because the pollution, because the high humidity, because the uh, light pollution, because the, the tourism, because Mallorca Island is very a very touristic place, then we needed to move uh, and to put this, this station, particularly for track uh, near the opposite in this place.
0: Well, clearly it has uh, been a very successful location for you and your colleagues. Just one other thing that I wanted to mention uh, that you brought up just before we started uh, recording, and that is you're a 21st century astronomer. You spend a lot of time on the high-speed trains in Spain, and you actually get to do some of your observing while you're riding along the rails at 300 kilometers per hour.
4: Yes, this is very... And the thing is, uh, we moved the observatory in La Sagra, but, and then we had there. The best place to observe, but nobody was there, no observers. And then the problem is to try to develop first is the web uh, uh, system to control the telescopes uh, remotely. Then we started to get a lot of images uh, at the observatory, but that's completely impossible to try to download at home or the office or whatever, because uh, the weight of the images, then we we needed to, to develop a processing software that was showing us through web pages the results, so the objects found in the images, but of course we need to be connected continuously to the observatory and as I need to spend a lot of time, because I'm living in Barcelona half of the week and the other I'm living in Madrid, Uh, I'm getting the train every week, so I'm traveling a lot of times during the week in the train and uh, fortunately the train has the possibility to be connected through the wireless connection to internet and then most of the observations, most of the reduction of the data Many of the scheduling for the telescopes are done from uh, from the train. So I, when I contribute with the team, uh, most of my work is is done from uh, from the, the train. The train, sorry, yes, true.
0: That's wonderful. I, Jaime, we are out of time, I'm afraid, but please congratulate uh, all the members uh, of your team there at La Sagra Observatory and uh, keep up the wonderful work and uh, uh, we look forward to talking to you again as you continue these uh, discoveries of asteroids and near-Earth objects and other small bodies that uh, circulate through our solar system.
4: I want to congratulate my colleagues in, in, because this is not my only my work. We have uh, a nice team of, of friends, more than colleagues, and we're working together in this uh, facility here, there. And also, uh, I want to give uh, big thanks to uh, the Planetary Society because they helped with this um, extremely uh, good-performing CCD camera that uh, helped us to discover not only this object, but the last 10-year object, one comet last month. The only thing that I can, uh, that I can do uh, say now that this is a CCD camera about in here in the United States, we are have some secret inside some secret inside that with brand that they try to uh, make some kind of tuning inside the CCD camera it goes much much faster than the one that they are selling commercially to, to, to everybody <laughs> <laughs> so this is the true so uh, we try to uh, them to, to try to make some tricky thing inside the electronics to try to, to make them faster able to uh, to do the work that we want to to get from, from it.
0: Well, keep up the great work, and it looks like a heavenly place to, to study the heavens. Jaime, once again, thanks for joining us on Planetary Radio.
4: Thank you to all the team and, and, and to you and who are listening.
0: And uh, we'll be right back for uh, this week's edition of What's Up with Bruce Betts. Big afternoon here at the Planetary Society. Uh, Pictures being taken of people, not of stuff in the sky. Yes, it's been class picture day at the Planetary (laughs) Society. It really has been.
3: (laughs) You'll be able to see pretty pictures sometime on our our new exotic website in a few weeks.
0: Pretty of some people,
3: goofy of others. Pretty goofy. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway. What's up? Well... I'm repetitive, but it's those glorious planets looking really cool. Venus and Jupiter in the evening sky in the west. Uh, early evening. They are at conjunction, which just means the closest point they're going to get to each other in the sky. On March fourteenth and Conjunction. Uh, conjunction junction. Uh, and on March twenty fifth and twenty sixth the crescent moon will join them. So there's Venus and Jupiter partying for the next uh, next few weeks still looking great. dominating just great the West and over in the East we got Mars looking orangish bright and uh, awesome still not that long after its opposition Saturn coming up later in the evening in the East looking dimmer than everyone else and yellowish but really cool in a telescope we move on to this week in space history a lot of stuff happened this week in space history we'll hit a couple of them first of all a uh, messenger one year ago went into orbit around Mercury Great stuff has been coming back from Messenger, giving us a whole new understanding of the uh, innermost planet. So that's uh, that's been cool. We also had in 1965, Alexei Leonov took the world's first spacewalk.
0: That's right. Just uh, beating out Ed White in the uh, Gemini capsule.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, but they weren't actually beating each other. It, it wasn't. They weren't in the same place. <laughs> they weren't throwing
0: gloves. Is that why Ed White had that, that
3: stick-like thing? <laughs> That's right. Was that you, a just-in-case? You case? thought that was
0: a propulsion thing, didn't you? <laughs> I no, did, but that I just was realized. A, that was a silly string projector. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what
3: to do with that. We move on <laughs> to
0: random space fire!
3: I didn't think that motor was going to start. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that next time. On uh, the second space shuttle mission in 1981, Joe Engel at the uh, command controls, he, uh, on that flight he became the first and only pilot ever to manually fly an aerospace vehicle from Mach 25 all the way to landing.
0: Wow. Because usually there's a lot of autopilot involved. Yeah, I didn't even think that was possible. Obviously it is. Thank
3: goodness. (laughs) (laughs) NASA officials didn't think it was either, but Joe knew where the little switch was. (laughs) No, totally, totally not true. We move on to the trivia question, and uh, I asked you what spacecraft went closest to the sun, and how far away was it? How would we do, Matt? Closest
0: on purpose, right? Uh, anyway, I don't know. Maybe I just no. occurred to me that maybe there might have been one or two that have been, you know, fell right in or something.
3: No, it's no? really, it's amazingly hard to go to the sun. You have to change a huge amount of velocity. It's like uh, going to the
0: outer solar system. That's right. It's like Messenger really had to struggle to yeah, get into just orbit, just get
3: into Mercury. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, they meant to do it. No, really, they okay. meant to do it. It's the story. There, there were all those ships on Battlestar Galactica that went into the sun. That was true, and that was realistic. I'm sorry. I forgot about that, Matt.
0: All right. You want the answer? Yes, please. Oh, you, please. you can't handle the answer. It's too hot for you. No. Ah. It was Ken Smith who won. Ken Smith out of Ontario, Canada. He said the answer is Helios 2, 1976, long time ago. Orbited the sun at about 43 million kilometers. Actually got closer than that. He did point out that uh, if you wait 5 billion years, the Earth will be even closer to the sun because the sun will have moved out into us.
3: Yeah, I, I don't think that counts, Matt. Oh, all right. Matt, that's, that's okay. That's the future. Spaceship Earth. That's different. I, similarly, I don't think Battlestar Galactica's spacecraft.
0: <laughs> you know how fast it was going, though? Battle Helios 2, that is. Oh, Helios no. 2. No. How fast was it? Well, Robert McClarty says that it reached 241,350 kilometers per hour. Pretty darn fast. And really, to make it even more impressive, Wesley Hayes said that that's 0.0234% of C, speed of light. Wow. Not bad. <laughs> Not bad. That's zippy. That's the other technical term. It is
3: zippy. Mm-hmm. All right, we move on to the next trivia contest question. Uh, Opportunity rover on Mars has uh, snuggled in for a long winter's. Well, it's not actually going to nap; it's going to be doing science, but it's it's going to be uh, chilling hard, trying to keep itself powered up and warm during the Martian winter. Here's your question: Where is Opportunity now, and where will it spend the Martian winter? I'm looking for the Probably still unofficial name, but the name for where they are, named after a, a Mars scientist and, uh, and an all-around good guy. Go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to enter.
0: You have until Monday, March 19 at 2 p.m. Pacific time to get us that answer. And if you are chosen by random.org and you have the correct answer, you will win... Exactly the same planetary radio T-shirt that we give uh, to Ken Smith. We didn't mention he's getting a T-shirt. Okay, we'll give you another T-shirt. You won't have to wear Ken's.
3: <laughs> All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about if you took pictures of Matt and me, where would we be? <laughs> where would you put us? How would you shape us?
0: Never mind. Thank you, and good night. It's a really painful thing. <laughs> I don't want to do any more. Don't make me take any more pictures. I have to take more pictures. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects at the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Say green cheese. Green cheese? Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and made possible by a grant from the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation and by the members of the Planetary Society, Clear Skies.